have a fairly pragmatic approach to political life. I always remember a former Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, telling me one day, Kevy, in politics, mate, we're not Lancaster bombers. We're not uh, out there sort of lumbering over the target, uh, eventually seeking to drop our ordinance. We're spitfires, mate. We've got limited time. Get out there and uh, take on the enemy, get it done and get out of there. His sobering lesson was we don't know how much time we've got. You have to accept the fact that it's a precarious profession. Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister of Australia twice, from 2007 until 2010, and much more briefly in mid-2013. He led the Australian Labour Party to a huge victory in the 2007 general election, but was never quite as popular among certain of his own colleagues as he was with the Australian public. He was overthrown in a party room coup by his former ally Julia Gillard, who subsequently appointed him foreign minister. Rudd in turn overthrew Gillard shortly before the 2013 election, which Labour lost. I'm Andrew Muller, and Kevin Rudd joined me a few months back, prior to the descent of the COVID-19 pandemic, for The Big Interview. Kevin Rudd, welcome to The Big Interview. Good to be with you here in London. Uh, I, I want to start at the start, because it is something that's always intrigued me, and I think it's a way of explaining your beginnings in politics to a, a global audience. But you were, of course, a Labour Prime Minister, but you come up from almost archetypal country party, as it used to be known background. You grew up tough in rural Queensland. You, you were a country party family. And yet, as a teenager, you're, you gravitate towards Labour. Why was that? I think a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I had a mum who insisted I read books, uh, which was in the state I grew up in, in Queensland in the 60s and 70s, was almost illegal. So I read books and I read books about politics and the world. These were the things that um, I stumbled across, developed an interest in the Labour Party and an interest in China, actually. But the second reason was just much more direct and personal. Uh, my father died as a kid. He was mm. killed in an accident. Uh, and then the idyllic world of growing up on a farm in rural Queensland sort of came crashing down because in those days there was uh, nothing called really in our part of Australia a compassionate welfare state. So we were out on our own. So that I think at a much more basic level just caused me to think why and uh, this shouldn't happen to anybody and caused me intellectually and emotionally mm. to gravitate to the centre left of politics. Your entry into politics as a politician takes a few detours. You, you, you're initially a diplomat with various foreign postings, especially in China. I had to learn how to talk posh, yeah. <laughs> Which has been a particular interest. Um, but w was politics always the plan? Did you think of being a diplomat as an apprenticeship for what you eventually wanted to do? The honest answer is I wanted to be a diplomat. I uh, dreamt one day of maybe being a foreign minister. Mm. which meant, of course, going into politics. But I don't think I really had a game plan back then, hurting the dairy cattle, of being the prime minister of the country. But any young person growing up with interest in public life and political life, look, at the back of their mind has this secret baton in the backpack, which is maybe just one day, maybe just one day. And often it's just part of the boys' own annual rather than anything more serious. You did, of course, become foreign minister, which we will get to, though not necessarily in the circumstances you might have envisaged or indeed preferred. But when you say that there wasn't really a definite plan at least early on, to become prime minister, was there a particular point at which it occurred to you actually that might be possible. Yeah, I remember sitting in the parliamentary party room one day in Canberra 
This was well after I was elected. And we had just uh, uh, copped our third or fourth election loss in a row. And um, I was beginning to take out the abacus and work out that this may be quite a while before I'm able to be on the Treasury benches. And then I looked around the room and I thought, who here can lead this show into victory? Now, this sounds to many people who will be listening to this audience, ultimate vaingloriousness. But for me, it was actually deeply pragmatic. You probably need a bit of vaingloriousness, though, don't you, to think like that? Yeah. You know, I've never been much into the psychology of politics. But I think in broad terms, politicians divide into two camps. Those who actually want to do serious things, who have um, the reformist zeal in their bones, and those who just like like being there. Uh, Remember Peter Sellers' last movie? Being there. Uh, (laughs) And I think... It doesn't matter where you are, Chinese Communist Party, Australian Labor Party or the British Conservative Party. They tend to gravitate into either of those categories. So I think I'm in the reform camp. I want to be in public life in order to improve the condition of the world. That's what drives me, both at home and abroad. But you don't get to do that unless you you know, grapple with the praxis of politics. And so in the party room that day, I looked around and thought, geez, I'm not sure there are folks here who can defeat John Howard, who was then Mm. one of our most successful conservative prime ministers since the war. But you become prime minister in 2007, and I know you said you're not much interested in the the psychology of politics. But nonetheless, I've always been intrigued by that moment at which it's gone beyond the theoretical. It's actually happened. You are the prime minister of a given country. And I guess, especially in the Australian context, your name is now appearing at the end of a lineage of some quite extraordinary Labour prime ministers in particular. And is it weird thinking of yourself as owning a name which is going to appear alongside whoever your favourites were, whether it's Curtin or Chifley or Whitlam Hawke or Keating. Did did that take a while to get used to? Very much so. By nature, though my critics would never agree with this, I'm actually quite shy. (laughs) Um, And and that is, I'm not much into, let's call it the hagiography of politics. Mm. So it is an odd experience and one which I'm not instinctively comfortable with and wasn't instinctively comfortable with. And the second, I think, reflection on it, going back to the time when I found myself for the first time in the near political front line as the chief of staff to a Labor Premier of Queensland. Mm. We'd been out of office for 32 years, suddenly found ourselves in political office. I was 31 years old, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. But then I just remember driving to work the first morning of that new government and thinking the exercise of political power is a frightening thing because it actually affects people. Prior to that, it's a debating society. But the exercise of political power is a frightening thing. And that's always been part of my consciousness that what you decide affects real people's lives. Did you find that, especially once you've risen to that national peak of power, did did you find that, I don't know what the word is, intimidating? Did it make you nervous? Is that why I I think politicians can get stuck in a position of just not making decisions? Because, as you say, if you make a decision somebody's going to be on the receiving end of it. No, I think you hold these things in tension. I was describing an underlying approach to power, which some people describe, you know, as Henry Kissinger did the ultimate aphrodisiac, that is being in political office. Never been my experience, by the way. Plenty of Chinese herbalist stores who can provide alternatives. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, but no, my, I think you can hold in tension a view that power is to be exercised cautiously in terms of the decisions you make. That's the first thing. 
But secondly, so long as you arrive in office with a well-thought-out plan of what you're going to do, I think why we have a number of political leaders who arrive in political office like, you know, bunnies in the headlights is because they haven't thought it through either A, what do they fundamentally believe in or B, what their program for office is. I've been thinking and writing about these things for years. So having been elected, I had complete confidence in what we were to set out to do and we had a detailed manifesto for that election and uh, we set about doing it. A plan which you didn't get to exercise all the way through, obviously. You you lost office before the end of your first term to an internal party coup, as you've subsequently put it. And most of the Australian <laughs> literature so describes it, when you because think, it was. <laughs> when you think back on that period, though, was there a moment at which you realised that something had shifted underneath you? All of us in political office arrive, I hope, in my case, we did have a plan for what we wanted to do. Reform of the economy and key social legislation, environmental change in the case of climate change, foreign policy, our place in the world. But at the same time, you have to be mindful of exocets arriving from uh, centre-left or centre-right. In our case, it was the global financial crisis. And so you can be elected with a bright, bold reform plan, which we were and which we're in the process of executing, and then continued to do so. But suddenly there's an existential crisis, which is economies and financial systems are being knocked over like nine pins around the world. So in terms of a sense of the ground shifting, that was it. And from that point on, it was like living two lives, keeping an economy and financial system afloat from the worst crisis Mm. since the Great Depression, while still prosecuting your program for government. Was in the gap between those two things, though, where you, you think you lost your own party? No, as I've reflected on it, and this is detailed in a chronology of uh, this period of the government in an autobiography I've written, Uh, being nerdy, it's got 1,400 footnotes, and I I haven't (laughs) been sued yet, so go and have a look. Uh, But the bottom line is this. Look, politics at, at a different level is just Shakespearean. There are a bunch of people sitting behind you who want your job, and as a consequence... As soon as you display a vulnerability, in my case, that vulnerability arose because of the Copenhagen conference on climate change at the Mm. end of 2009, where we didn't get the outcome we wanted, where Tony Abbott had taken over the Conservative Party in Australia and was driving a campaign to the effect that if we acted on climate change in Australia further, we would be killing jobs and killing the economy. And my adversaries, led by Julia Gillard and Wayne Swan... These are uh, internal Labour Party adversaries. Yeah, but then Deputy Prime Minister and then Treasurer, saw an opportunity and they went for it. Well, good luck to them, but let's just, just call it for what it is. And it's just kind of basic Shakespearean passion of which most of the uh, Shakespeare's political plays deal in some gory detail. Is there anything you think you could have done differently at the time that might have might have forestalled that? Yeah, I think there's probably two things. One is... Trust your closest colleagues less. So that's a heartwarming message. Oh, well, it's kind of a reflection. My, it's partly a human nature thing. I grew up on a farm. You trust people around you because that's what, that's what uh, the natural environment mm. teaches you. You always need your neighbours. There's going to be a fire coming over that hill any old time and you don't know whose house it's going to go for first. Literally, that's been my experience as a kid growing up. So it may, it may seem like a mundane observation, but um, I had been a fairly trusting soul. The second, though, in terms of real policy error, I think, in my part, was when um, Deputy Prime Minister Gillard and uh, Treasurer Swan came in to me and said, you must kill our emissions trading scheme. 
I resisted, continued to resist, but sensed, as it were, a buckling in the Cabinet's internal resolve to continue with action on climate change after the Copenhagen conference had failed to deliver a Paris-type outcome. I then sought to compromise and said, we'll defer the emissions trading scheme by two years. We'd already been defeated in the Senate twice on it. It's not Mm. as if we hadn't tried. But by deferring it, it uh, conveyed a political impression to the community at large that I had abandoned it as opposed to deferring it two years, which was the reality. And that was a core error of political communication on my part, made worse by the fact that uh, Deputy Prime Minister Gillard's office actually uh, leaked the decision to the press before we had an opportunity to explain what the hell we were doing. So that goes back to the Shakespearean point of earlier on. When you got your job back in 2013, albeit briefly, was was there any part of you, do you think, that had succumbed to a a similar thing? Was that a a purely pragmatic manoeuvre on your part or was there any part of you at all that thought, I will get even with these people, I will show them? No, I was already embarked to Harvard University. I mean, the historical record will show that I'd already taken up an offer to go to the Harvard Kennedy School to work on US-China relations and was not set to recontest the 2013 election. And so what happened was the parliamentary party then came into me in absolute desperation because under Prime Minister Gillard, they'd been behind radically and drastically in all opinion polls for three years. And we were headed for total electoral wipeout. So they came to me, friends of mine, and said, look, we may not be able to win this thing, but if you come back as leader, it'll be a respectable loss which will preserve the furniture for the future. So to which I said, well, that's great. Uh, Thank you, colleagues, comrades. (laughs) I get to come back, lead you to a respectable defeat. I then get blamed for the defeat, and uh, one of you gets to become leader in the future. I got the script right? To which they said, yes, you've summed it up very nicely. That's exactly what happened. Did you spend or have you spent a lot of time since sort of brooding, I guess, on the the complete first term and the possible second term you never got to have? Are there things that you really wish that you had a chance to do? Not really. I have a fairly pragmatic approach to political life. I always remember a former Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, telling me one day, Kevy, uh, <laughs> which is uh, Paul's standard way of addressing me, in politics, mate, mate, mate. We're not Lancaster bombers. We're not uh, out there sort of lumbering over the target, uh, eventually seeking to drop our ordnance. We're spitfires, mate. We've got limited time. Get out there and uh, take on the enemy, get it done and get out of there. So, But his sobering lesson was we don't know how much time we've got. And Paul, who was a seminal figure in Australian politics, mm. was prime minister for not much longer than I was. So you have to accept the fact that it's a precarious profession. When you think back on that semi-completed term as Prime Minister you got to serve, are there things that you look back on with particular pride? There was the the apology to Australia's Indigenous people, of course, which I think you're probably best remembered for. Is that the one thing that you really think of as the, the, the signature accomplishment of that period? For me, there are several. Advancing the cause of reconciliation with our first Australians is a core part of it, simply because whitefellas in Australia had treated Indigenous Australians appallingly for a couple of hundred years. And this was an attempt to turn the Queen Mary around. Mm. Uh, and I think we achieved uh, something not just in the, the as it were, the, the poetry of an apology and the, the genuineness with which it was delivered, but by a program of closing the gap between uh, the lives of Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. But 
I think for us uh, also the other big thing was being the only economy, the only economy in the global financial crisis in the developed world to avoid a recession. And that reflected for me some pretty basic values. I'm the uh, youngest son of a mother and a father who lived as children through the Great Depression. Mm. And I had in my mind's eye their childhood tales of what a depression was like, like not enough food on the table and no one having a job. And so we threw everything at it. And we were the only OECD economy to survive through what the uh, IMF subsequently described as the most successful targeted fiscal stimulus strategy on record. And then the last thing is being a co-founder of the G20, which is a mechanism to broaden global governance beyond uh, the Eurocentric G7. On the subject of the, the Indigenous apology, what value do you think it has had since? It, it's a topic that I think comes up in contexts other than Australia, obviously. Every country in the world has that thing it's not proud of that at some level it, it would like to try and make amends for. But how important is, is practical accompaniment to the symbolic apology? My, my question, I guess, is do people often get over-invested in the, the symbolic gesture and thinking, well, we've apologised, that's it, surely, everything's fixed? If you look at the text of the apology which I delivered, it was about two things. Think about this. When you've really screwed somebody over in your life, mm-hmm. if you ever have, and you say one day, well, okay, let's just get on with it, without ever actually saying... That tends to be a tough sell. Uh, tends to be a tough sell. And if you put yourself for a moment in the mind's eye of an Indigenous Australian, being on the receiving end of a couple of centuries of accentuated racism, it doesn't work. So the dignity of a human transaction, which is... I have wronged you, and I, on behalf of all governments in this parliament so assembled past, this parliament here assembled today and the people of this country, tender a formal apology to you, the first occupants of this country. It has a substantive effect as well as opening the door of the heart and the mind to what you then do at a practical level to get on with each other. Others will comment on 10 years later the extent to which it had an enduring effect. I think it's made it much harder the conservative forces in Australia to roll all that back and to play the old racisms of the past. They fiddle around the edges Mm. with it. They're playing politics with the question of final constitutional recognition of Indigenous people in Australia's founding document. But by and large, it makes it harder for them. Why? Because I actually brought the then leader of the opposition along with me on the apology. And it was his poor print together with mine which actually endorsed the final resolution which contained the text of the apology in the parliament. A bit difficult to walk away from that. I mean, there probably wasn't enough time in your your second term as prime minister to absorb any any great lessons about the role of national leadership. But your first stint in particular, do you end up thinking differently about a country for the fact of having led it? What do you learn about Australia that you didn't know before you were put in charge of it? It's a good question. In fact, it's the first time someone's asked me that. So let me sort of reflect on it and try and do it some justice in the answer. I think the public and the people of our country are always up for strong leadership when you have a clear proposition to put to them, Mm. as opposed to a view of politics, which is it's all done in the rear vision mirror. That is, where's public opinion gone and how do I basically work in the slipstream of it? For example, this thing we did with the national apology. Most of my parliamentary colleagues said, mate, you want to do that? 
you're going to uh, end up uh, heading far too far to the left of this show. Mainstream Australia will never come with you. And frankly, when I stood up to do the apology, I thought that was probably the case. What surprised me was that the nation actually came with us. And Mm. after the event, even the Tories, the Conservatives, could no longer occupy this sort of racist space on the question of Indigenous Australians, which I'd occupied before. So the principle I put back to you in answer to your question is, never underestimate that the people of our countries still crave effective leadership around a program, however bold it is, but is explained to them, and then they will come with you. Don't just assume that we're now totally atomized into a thousand social media balkanized sub-republics who couldn't agree on where the washroom was, let alone the course of the nation. On the subject of social media, that is an interesting divide that your two terms in office straddle. In 2007, when you run a campaign to become prime minister, it's hardly a thing. People have MySpace accounts, but they're not really part of the political sphere. But the second time around, it's a huge, huge deal, social media by then. What difference do you think it's made to attempting to do all the things you've been discussing, establish a proposition, put it to the people and bring them with you? Has it made it harder? Yes and no. I hate to sit on a fence here, but but I've got to give you an honest answer to your question. Yes, in this sense, Australian politics is essentially uh, dominated by an overwhelming Murdoch media. Mm. Murdoch own 70% of the Australian print media, and therefore 7-0, not 0-7 for your listeners. Uh, And therefore, that has a huge effect given the far-right agenda he runs on immigration, the far-right agenda he runs on climate change, the far-right agenda he runs on a good government as a non-taxing government. So therefore, as a progressive government, you face a real challenge. So carving out a space for yourself in the national Uh, media is difficult and social media provides progressive politics with voices in the Australian context which we didn't have before. What's difficult about it and in some cases unmanageable about it is it can become this platform for the universal articulation of hatred in a manner which is well beyond the uh, normal framework for political discussion and debate in decades past. I genuinely wonder about this and about the corrosive effect it must have on people operating in politics. And and you will have experienced this, that you may post the mildest observation on Twitter or something, and your replies will fill up almost instantly with really quite a lot of crazy and unpleasant stuff. That must get wearing to an extent. Yeah, we like to say in politics in Australia that we all develop the uh, hide of a rhinoceros. You would need to. And then we wrap that hide in kangaroo skin, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and double strap it. But, you know, the bottom line is we're all human beings, so we're affected also by unkindness. Here is, I think, a, a core part of uh, what I think you're pointing to. There's a danger that in responding to the avalanche of hatred unleashed by social media, but frankly previously also by organs of the uh, the Murdoch media in Australia, mm-hmm. whereby to survive psychologically and emotionally, you cut yourself off, by which I mean to protect yourself. You actually pull down a barrier. And that there is a danger in doing that, that you also cut off your ability to feel and have empathy more generally. There is a tension, therefore, in protecting yourself from the avalanche of hatred while still maintaining a beating heart and a a live soul for the business of compassion 
and solidarity, which uh, frankly is underpinning principles for progressive uh, social justice, uh, is what our side of politics is on about. Does that toxic environment, though, is it one of the things that has made it more difficult in recent years for centre-left parties, for want of a less vague term, to actually get elected? Your own party, the Australian Labor Party, lost an election in 2019, which everybody assumed unlosable. Well, on the Australian election in 2019, we can talk about that separately if you like, but on the general principle which you've just asked, the leitmotif of our political age is insecurity. That is, people feel insecure through technology and technology change in terms of the future of their jobs. And as a consequence of that, you see a lashing out at the forces of, quote, globalization, unquote, a lashing out at foreigners who come to my country mm-hmm. in order to possibly take my job, often more in perception than in reality. And therefore, that bleeds into a general view perpetrated by the far right that all this is because of some, um, you know, latte-sipping bunch of progressives who are unmindful of your challenges and your realities in allowing all the above to happen. And by the way, we'll kill your jobs with climate change action as well. All I'm saying is the politics of the reality of insecurity can be addressed as it is by the far right through the politics of anxiety and fear and hatred. Mm -hmm. And they're very good at harnessing all those emotions and targeting them against centre-left progressive politics. Whereas we in the centre-left offer them hope opportunity and uh, solidarity. You know as well as I do that anxiety, fear and hatred are highly potent emotions when matched against hope, opportunity and my concern for my fellow human beings. So our challenge on the centre-left, given that social media provides even a bigger platform Mm. for for anxiety, fear and hatred, is to effectively disarm the incoming attack but also to engender what I would describe as an appropriate sense of rage about the actual impact of the far-right conservative agenda. I want to go back, as we are running out of time, regrettably, to your time as Prime Minister and specifically to your your role as a former Prime Minister of Australia. And because of the turnover in the last decade, we now have quite a lot of those. Among those of you who have performed that extremely unusual role, is there any solidarity at all? Do you feel like you have something in particular profound in common with all of them, whether you actually like them or agree with them or not? I think all occupants of the office of Prime Minister in Australia in the last decade or so have been dealing with the challenge of how do we respond effectively to the dilemma China's rise and America's historical relationship with us. And so, for example, Scott Morrison, after his re-election, I rang him up and I went and had a chinwag with him at Kirribilli, which is the Prime Minister's residence Mm. on Sydney Harbour, just about how you could um, possibly manage this very difficult relationship with the future. And I'm quite critical of Mr. Morrison in a number of areas, most particularly on climate change. But on the China relationship, I have said publicly, and I mean it, in every fibre of my being, that this is a hard question for anyone occupying the office. So in answer to your question, on those mega challenges, uh, there is a sense, I think, among some of us at least, of a solidarity. Is returning to Kirribilli House now at all a a melancholy proposition and not just because it is a heck of a view? Is, Is there anything else you miss about the role? 
Well, I love the way you just uh, then moved from the uh, conditional to the definitive <laughs> in the two phrases making up that question. I may be out of politics for five years, mate, but I can spot that one coming uh, like a nice seamer down the, uh, down the offside. Uh, no, look, going back to see Morrison at Kirribilli is evokes no particular you know, historical memories. We had a great time there living as a family. Our youngest guy was barely a teenager. I remember a visiting congressional delegation literally the week after I was elected as our young guy sort of came screaming out and disappearing down the grass hill at Kirribilli on the back of a cardboard uh, packing box, uh, which he'd <laughs> turned into a toboggan, to which I then said, that's my son. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we got all those sorts of memories. You know, It's all that family stuff, which is uh, good and real. But uh, I go back to what Paul Keating said before. We don't know how long we have in political office. The key thing, whether it's in uh, Boris's Britain or in Morrison's Australia, is to use uh, whatever time we have wisely and effectively because we don't know how long it will be. Kevin Rudd, thank you for joining us. My thanks to Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Australia. The Big Interview is produced and edited by Yolene Goffan. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.